And if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. I had uh, one of those dramatic experiences during the week where um, I'd prepared my sermon early, was going to look at um, verses 1 through to verse 14. Oh, and sorry, by the way, um, the children are going out now. So if you've got young children, um, Corner Pebble is on at the back. So if the children would like to head out the back there, the great exodus occurs. Great. Um, and this experience was, uh, as I looked at 1 to 14, my wife and son were saying, wow, there's so much in this that you could do a whole sermon series. And I thought, you're right. Um, and so that's actually what we're going to do. Um, from verses 1 to verse 14, we're going to do a sermon series over the next six or seven weeks as we look at um, God's word here, because there's just so much in it. It's like a treasure chest um, of, of spiritual riches and truths. Um, I'm going to read this morning from verse 1 through to verse 14, and this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. We're going to pray. I might just grab that um, off you. Thanks. Ah, let's pray. Lord, there are so many great riches in God's word here, in, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand them. 
Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit because we know that these are things which cannot be just simply understood with the mind but must be spiritually revealed to us. So as what happened with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, we pray that you would break through and that we would see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up and we would hear you speaking to us through your word this day. Lord, we ask for your blessing, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin this morning by talking with you about something which happened in Hobart this week, which I think is really quite shocking. Or at least it should be to anybody who truly knows Christ. Hopefully you can see that. And that is, uh, during Dark Mofo, uh, people carried what the Mercury described as being a quote-unquote sacrificial totem. The sacrificial totem, if you can look up at the screen, is of a gigantic platypus. And they carried it throughout our streets. The effigy was apparently filled with pieces of paper on which were written the fears of over 80,000 people. The Balinese man who created the totem was quoted in the Mercury as saying this, In Bali, we don't have the platypus. We find different animals here in Tasmania, so this is a unique collaboration. I think the platypus is like a duck and a fish. And in Bali, the duck is a holy animal, a goddess of knowledge. He went on to say, with the ogre ogre burning, the fears are purged and the spirit goes back to where it belongs. It's a thanksgiving to the natural world. Now, accompanying the sacrificial totem, though, were a number of other strange and even frightening statues. One of them of a man and the other of a woman. The man being on the left of the picture and the woman being on the right. What a lot of people uh, might not be aware of, though, is that these two statues are directly borrowed from Hindu mythology. As the website states, the Ogo Ogo, usually made of some form of paper mache, is put onto a bamboo frame serving as the base. Exactly what's happening here. The young people of a local community create these oversized statues in the likeness of demons or evil spirits or other fantastical figures from Hindu mythology. Some statues are in reference to more current issues and might resemble real people known for cruelty or greed or injustice. But as a symbol of all of the bad things that might happen in life, the Ogo Ogos are burnt afterwards to make room for good energy that can bring humanity peace and prosperity in the year ahead. And this is precisely what is happening in our great city of Hobart in 2023. With funding from local, as in Hobart City Council, 500000 federal, $1 million, and state, seven and a half million dollars each year. It's one of those watershed moments when you realise, I think, that God has turned over our state 
and I indeed, I think, our nation to sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, although claiming to be wise, they became fools. For we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles and platypuses. Even though we are surrounded, I think, exceptionally so in Hobart, with the beauty and the glory of God's creation, instead of giving glory to him as our creator, what we do is we worship the creation which he has made. And that means that in our rejection to Christ or of Christ, we are, as a nation and particularly as a state, reverting back to paganism. Because whenever anyone stops worshipping God, it's not that they worship nothing, but that as fallen human beings, it's that you'll worship anything. We have all been made to worship. Now, I don't say any of this to generate fear or despondency. It's not like the sky is falling in and there isn't any hope. As I've heard Campbell um, say on many occasions, there's never been a better time to be a Christian. Because what we're seeing is a reduction in Christian nominalism of people who claim to follow Christ, but in reality, they don't. Now, the reason I say all of this is because just as what happened with Jonah, I honestly believe that the Lord God could send a spiritual revival on our nation and our state at any time. Our entire city, just think about this, from the Premier to the Lord Mayor, by the power of God's Spirit, could be converted overnight. The Lord is able to do that, isn't he? As we learnt last year through that particular book, the Lord is so sovereign that when Jonah's message reached the king, Jonah didn't even actually say it to the king in person. When it reached the king, he took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the ashes. That's the spirit of God. And then he issued this decree. He said, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, Taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And the Lord could do a similar kind of miraculous intervention yet again. The reason why I mention this, though, is because this is precisely the same situation that the Apostle Paul faced in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was one of the ancient or one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is what it looks like today. It's located in what is now modern day Turkey. And this is all that remains. In its day, though, it was considered to be one of the most beautiful and impressive structures ever created. 
It looks something like that. The city of Ephesus, though, was filled with people who worshipped idols. And if you take a look up the screen, you'll see a picture of the type of thing that they worshipped. This particular example was uncovered about 70 years ago where they were doing excavations in the region of Ephesus. As you can see, it's covered in breasts, which relates to the fertility and sexuality associated with what the goddess Artemis was all about. And it's a very similar context that we find ourselves in today. And I'm just surprised David Walsh hasn't come up with something similar. Because when people reject God's law, they throw off all moral restraint. A minister friend of mine in Sydney is the current moderator for the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. And one of the responsibilities that the moderator has is to go to all of the church schools in New South Wales and give an address. He recently went to Scots College in Sydney in which he urged them to, as men, be men of courage and to be men of, of their minds and to think more deeply than slogans such as, love is love. It was illogical, he said, much like saying cat food is cat food because it doesn't actually tell you anything about what love, or cat food for that matter, is. According to my friend, and rightly so, you have to define your terms. The point he was making was both incredibly insightful um, as well as courageous in given the context. It was from Proverbs 9. It says this, Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. You see, what he meant was, was that what makes water or food, for that matter, legitimate? It's not what it is, but it's the context in which it is eaten. For if it's procured illegitimately, stolen water or food, then it might taste really good, but it will lead to death. And this applies in every area of our lives, including, and I could probably say especially to do, with how we use our bodies. If I can continue my friend's analogy just for a second, chocolate is a delicacy for ourselves, isn't it, as human beings? We have to hide it in our house. We have special places in the cupboard which continue to remain secret. But it's incredibly dangerous for cats or dogs. Especially if it's dark chocolate or cooking chocolate, which I've read can actually be deadly for them. If you'd like to understand the science behind this, I'm sure you can ask our own David and Energy. I'm sure they'll give you a really good explanation. But the point is, is this, this. Not everything we view as being food is actually good or even appropriate for some creatures to eat. By the way, when my colleague made this point, he was condemned and has continued to be so in the mainstream media in Sydney for being homophobic and misogynistic. 
both of which are completely untrue. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more loving or respectful Christian man than my friend. But it's a great reminder that people today are just as intolerant as they were when the New Testament was being written. As the non-Christian novelist David um, Foster Wallace has written, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This is why people get upset and increasingly angry if you disagree with them, especially about their sexuality. Because you're actually taking away from the majesty of the God that they worship. It's a religion. And it will cause people to get upset, to gather together in opposition. And as we see in Acts 19, when Paul preached the gospel at Ephesus, to riot. Well, with those extended words of introduction, what do the opening verses of Ephesians have to teach us? And can I just say today, we're just going to look at the first three, or sorry, two verses. And I really only have three points. They've all got to do with Christ. And it's got to do with who Christ is in terms of calling Paul to be an apostle what it has the effect of with the Ephesians who believed it, and then finally what it has for us. Uh, As I said before, the outline for this morning is completely different to the sermon that I'm going to give, so just a bit of leeway there. In fact, what you have in your corner post is, I think, going to function as the sermon series or the outline for the series that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. There's just so much in this opening section that, like I said before, I'd really like us all to slow down and to really take in what Paul is saying. In fact, I'd like to put out a challenge to us all this morning. And that is that you will learn with me, off by heart, this entire section. Go over it again and again, meditating on what the Holy Spirit has written, um, committing it to memory. Write out the relevant verse for this week. I'm not asking you to relearn the whole 14 verses this week, but just learn the first two. Write it on a piece of paper, carry it around in your pocket. It's only going to be one or two verses a week. But in just a little while, you'll have learnt the entire first half chapter. What I long for us to do, though, is to savour the sweetness of Scripture as you would a hard-boiled lolly. To experience the reality that King David talks about when he says in Psalm 19, the statutes of the Lord are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Does that sound like something you can commit yourself to do? We begin then by considering verse 1 which is about the letter's author, the Apostle Paul. You might not believe this, but this is probably the most controversial, controversial part of the entire letter. 
Because many people today don't actually believe that the Apostle Paul even wrote it. I obviously think he did, and to be honest, I don't even think it's worth discussing. Uh, It's just one of those things academics come up with to keep themselves employed and the Church of God bemused. For as nearly everyone throughout the history of the church has agreed, the letter to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of the reasons it's included in the New Testament canon. But even more significantly, Paul was called to be an, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's such a simple statement, but it's incredibly profound. I mean, what happened to this man who was once a persecutor of the church to then become one of its most influential leaders? Even today, some 2,000 years later, people still devote their lives academically to understanding and even writing about what Paul taught. It's incredible. And as such, I think Paul is almost unquestionably the greatest theologian that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to his church. But what happened to Paul is actually, I think, one of the greatest conversion stories in the history of the world. It's so remarkable that I can't believe somebody hasn't attempted to turn his life into a major motion picture. Actually, I know why they haven't. Because we would have to give glory to Christ. And we can't have that happen, can we? (laughs) Not in today's world. It's just so much better, Paul's story, than anything Marvel could possibly come up with. His conversion to Christ is retold in the book of Acts, not once, not twice, but three times. In chapter 9, in chapter 22, and in chapter 26. That's how remarkable and important it is, even in Scripture. For what turned Paul's entire life around was nothing less than a real encounter with the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Of having his eyes opened to the supernatural reality that is always there. Significantly, Luke writes that the men who were travelling with Paul that day, they heard a sound, but they didn't see anyone. And immediately after his encounter with Christ, Paul himself was physically unable to see. And he has to undergo this metaphorical death and resurrection himself, so that in three days later, he can see after being blind. And his sight is only restored when the Lord tells a man named Ananias to go and lay hands on him. Paul becomes an apostle of Christ Jesus then by the sovereign will of God. It's definitely not something that he was seeking or even wanting. And it's precisely the same with us, isn't it? Whenever one of us becomes one of his children. The great hound of heaven chases us down. 
C.S. Lewis describes his own initial conversion to Christ in his book, Surprised by Joy, like this. He says, you must picture me alone in that room at Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. What a great picture of salvation. Because that's how we all are by nature. We don't want that. We want to be kings ourselves. Like in the original temptation with Satan in the garden, we want to be God. What Lewis captures so well here is that at the heart of being converted is the truth that we ourselves have been captured. That it wasn't something which we ourselves chose, but as Paul's going to go on and explain, we ourselves have been chosen. That God first reached out to us and in response, we've given in. That our wills have been changed or turned around by an infinitely greater will. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you experienced it? All of this leads us on to the second point, and that is the recipients of the letter who are the saints that are in Ephesus. John Calvin once wrote, No one is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no one is a saint who is not also a believer. In other words, the two realities go hand in hand. Because biblically speaking, to be a saint is to be someone like the Apostle Paul who has literally been set apart to believe. That's literally what the term saint means. It means it refers to the set apart ones. Those who have been chosen by God to believe and who will in turn live differently in response. Now Paul wasn't expecting to become a believer, was he? especially that day that he set out on the road to Damascus. We're told at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then the very next verse tells us that as he neared Damascus to do all of this, to kill Christians and to arrest those that he couldn't kill, a light fell from heaven, flashed around him, causing him to fall, from the, fall to the ground. Just like we read in the book of Jonah, God can convert a person in a single day. And often just when the night of wickedness is darkest, that's exactly the time that the Lord decides to shine the light of his mercy and love. 
And wouldn't it be fantastic if the Lord chose to do that in Hobart? Wouldn't that be just wonderful to see Christ honoured? That an even greater number of people worship Christ than put their faith in a paper platypus. Just as with the question as to whether Paul is actually the author of uh, Ephesians, so too there's been quite a lot of conjecture as to the precise meaning as to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And the debate centres around whether Paul means the faithful who are in Christ Jesus or more specifically those who have made the Lord Jesus the object of their faith, that is those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. But just as so often the answer to these things is yes. The answer is just like being in relationship or the relationship between being a saint and a believer. The answer is not either or but both. People who believe are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are people who believe. As Calvin once again so says so concisely, no one is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no one is a saint who is not also a believer. But therein is also the point. Everyone is either a sheep or a goat. You're either somebody who believes or you're somebody who doesn't. There is no other way to be right with God then than by having faith in his Son. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't think, or this doesn't mean rather that we think that we're better than everyone else. In fact, I think it means quite the opposite. At the heart of saving faith is the realisation that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It's acknowledging that we are sinners who are completely wretched and blind and naked. It's ironically being willing to admit that we are worse than everybody else. (laughs) All of which leads us to the third and final point, and that is the benefit for ourselves, namely for us who believe. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular expression is something which is unique to the Apostle Paul. And it's more in keeping, actually, with a religious benediction than it is with an ordinary greeting that you would have seen in the first century. See, in the first century, people would begin their letters quite literally with the term or the word greeting. And in Greek, it's, it's pronounced kairain. But Paul tweaks that expression and he says kairis, which means grace. He also says grace and peace to you who believe and are in Christ Jesus. It should remind us of the priestly blessing that you'll sometimes hear as a benediction here at church from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and what? Be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's the blessing we say to one another as Christians. And we have peace and grace from God. Paul is pronouncing on anyone as a Christian the very same blessing that Aaron was told to put upon the Israelites. 
because that's precisely what we've received. Through our union with Christ, we have been given both grace and peace from God in abundance. Have you put your trust in Jesus? In his death on the cross, resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven? If you have, then the good news is you and I have been saved. We've been forgiven and cleansed from all the wrongdoing that we've ever done. And this is where, can I say, our Old Testament reading from 2 Kings 5 involving Naaman, the Gentile army commander, comes in and is so helpful because it describes for us so wonderfully what God can do and we cannot. It describes to us both the power of his salvation but also the humility that's required to receive it. You see, on the one hand, God does through Elisha what Naaman could never do for himself. He miraculously cleanses him of an incurable skin disease. Leprosy is not something that we you know, talk much about or think much even about these days. But for most of human history, people saw it as being not only as a death sentence, but as something which meant that you had to be completely excluded from everybody else in society. And as such, it's difficult to really convey the full horror of the situation. It's also why Naaman is prepared to pay such an extraordinary amount to be healed. Ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. But even with the offer of such an extraordinary payment, the king of Israel understands that no amount of money can provide the required healing. It doesn't matter how much money you got. That's the only thing that can happen from the supernatural hand of God. Only God can do that. And interestingly, the Gentile kings who worship other gods have more faith in the true and living God than even the king of Israel. Not only that, but in a beautiful, I'm so glad Des got to read the whole chapter to us. Because really you see so beautifully in this chapter, it all, it's all given without cost. It's all given freely. Many of you will remember Renata last year who was demon-possessed and is now a Christian. What many of you probably don't know is that she tried to get the demons out of her through every other means possible. And it literally almost killed her. And she spent thousands of dollars doing it. Until finally she hit rock bottom and asked a Christian. And Derek and I went and visited her in hospital. And you know, one of the things that she said is, you've given to me what no one else could do. But the other thing that you've done is you've never asked for money. Why is that? Well, Renata, the greatest thing that you can say is freely we have been given or freely we've received, freely we give away. She couldn't believe it. You do that for free? Yeah, do it for free. But the thing that can be really easily missed in the story is how God's prophet tells Naaman to be healed. There's lots of different ways he could have done it, isn't it? You notice that... Uh, 
You notice that Naaman doesn't even get to meet Elisha in person. Such is the power of God's word. He comes to the door and Elisha sends a messenger and goes, yep, just tell him this is what you've got to do. You don't even need to meet me. God's word is so powerful, if you put your, if you put your hope in the promise of God's word, you don't even need to see me. But Naaman's upset because he's told that he has to wash in the Jordan River. That's a strange thing to do, but it's significant for two reasons. First of all, the waters of the Jordan were, as Naaman himself rightly objected, a lot dirtier and a lot muddier than the rivers which were located in Damascus where he was from. He's right. But that, can I just say, straight away knocks out any kind of naturalistic explanation as to why Naaman has been... If, you're, if you've got open wounds and sores on you, you are meticulous about cleaning yourself and in particular, not making it worse, right? Why go bathe in a dirty river? That doesn't make sense. But it wasn't simply the act of washing that made him clean, was it? As my minister friend in Sydney might have argued, water is not water. Cat food is not cat food. Love is not love. Each of those statements don't actually tell you anything. Let me go further. Desire for a person of the same sex is not love. It's lust. Giving chocolate to a cat is not food. It will kill them. And in exactly the same way, simply washing in river water won't cleanse you from an incurable skin disease like leprosy. Water is not water. Cat food is not cat food. Love is not love. The crucial element in each one of those illustrations that I'm giving you is you have to relate to God in the way that he is revealed. Otherwise, you're just rebelling. It's like you saying, I'll eat from any tree I like, thank you very much. Even the tree you said not to. Naaman's servant says to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Answer, of course I would. Maybe he'd said, go, travel through the mountains and you'll find this small little cave. Stay there for 40 days, praying and, and not eating any food and doing certain religious incantations. Would you have done it? Naaman, of course I would have. How much more then, he says, if he tells you, simply be washed and be cleansed. Now, we can take this theological truth even further because it's not like the Jordan River in itself had any magical healing properties. Otherwise, everyone in the world with leprosy would have gone there and would have automatically been healed. No, this was a unique promise of healing relating specifically to Naaman and it had to be explicitly connected to faith in Israel's God in particular to save. Here's the second aspect of this remarkable event. It's a reenactment of the Exodus. As recorded at the start of the book of Joshua, the whole nation of Israel miraculously passed through the, through the sea, not once, but twice. They passed through the Jordan River while it was flooding. 
It wasn't, again, naturalistic explanation. Oh, it's so convenient, you know, that they just got there when it was just at its low point and we could all cross. How amazing is that? Such a coincidence. Not like that. It was flooding. And just as the Lord did at the first exodus when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea. So too the people of God entered the promised land by precisely the same way. I'll never forget Graham Goldsworthy saying to us at college, if you're still thinking about this naturalistic explanation, like he, he was taught wrongly, then it's like you think, praise God, you know, the whole, the, the whole of Israel passed through the Red Sea in two inches of water. To which Graham Goldsworthy would say, praise God, God drowned the entire Egyptian army in two inches of water. Because that's the other side of the story you've got to, you've got to factor in. What's the greater miracle? They literally pass through the waters of the Jordan. By the way, it's also why the Lord Jesus begins his ministry by being baptised in the Jordan. Because he too is reenacting Israel's story. Let me go further. It's also the reason why you start the Christian life by being baptised. We too participate in an exodus. It's exactly the same spiritual symbolism. Like the nation of Israel passing through the water, we're saying that we have crossed over from death to life. From the dominion of Pharaoh to the kingship of Jesus, from being sinners to saints, our baptism is a wonderful sign of God's promise for us and for our children of salvation. And it's all to be found in Christ. A new purpose, a new beginning. A friend of mine who used to be a drug addict would often say to me, and I'll conclude with these words, he said, you know, Mark, Satan promises freedom, but he gives only slavery. Jesus, though, offers freedom, and he truly delivers. I couldn't have said it better myself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great joy. What a great joy to meet as your people this morning and to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. You are the true and living God. All other gods are but man-made idols. You alone can save. Lord, we worship you. We honour you. We confess to you that we so often give in to wanting to please those around us. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, for your forgiveness for the temptation that wars against our souls to put our faith in the things of this world. Lord, forgive us. Help us to cherish Christ. Lord, as we sang just before we looked at your word, give us an undivided heart that we might love your word, that we might hunger for your voice and know your spirit soared. Lord, we pray for each other this week that you would help us to memorise your word. Verses 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians. May you take your truth and plant it deep in our hearts as we meditate, as we chew on it. 
may we be able to say with the psalmist that your word is like gold. It's like honey, sweet to our taste. Lord, bless us, we pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we with Naaman would know the power of your forgiveness and your cleansing. Because we, Lord, by nature are dirty with sin. Cleanse us, we pray, for simply trusting in the death, resurrection and ascension of your Son. Thank you, Lord, because this is the great promise you extend to us. Thank you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.